All right, if you would be turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. And just as as a way of reminder, our usual practice is after Easter to do a sermon series on the Holy Spirit, and as God would have it, we're in one of the great Holy Spirit chapters, which is Romans chapter 8, which you can add to John 14 and John 16 and Galatians 5, before you ever should try to break open 1 Corinthians 12 and go letting the gifts get loose. You want to have some banks of the river. And this helps us further those banks to further understand how does the Spirit work in our lives? How can we pray? How can we be more dependent on the Holy Spirit? Not in lieu of Christ, but because of our union with Christ. And so, as we have seen thus far, it is the spirit in which we are to walk. The spirit is life, and life more abundant. The spirit is the resurrection power that courses through our veins. And as we remember from last week, it is the spirit that convicts us of sin, that helps us to see the ways in which we are separated from God, from each other, from ourselves, and from creation. It is also the spirit that that stirs within us a desire for righteousness, which remember, every time you read that word, you've got to pause because the devil has done a masterful job of making it a dirty word in many contexts, right? You go telling people that, hey, I'm all about righteousness, and what are they going to think of you? Right? If they don't have a biblical framework, they're going to think you're being arrogant because we have slid that word self in front of it to throw it off kilter, instead of recognizing it as righteousness is shorthand for the character of God, for the person and work of Jesus Christ. You should look past yourself always because you have no righteousness inherent within you apart from that which Christ has granted and imbued and, and, and placed on you, clothed you in. And so always remember Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Always remember that Christ is gentle and lowly. When you read righteousness, may it humble you, may it humble us for the life of the world. And then remember, he also reminds us that there is a judgment coming. Right? There, there, there is a soberness with which we ought live. For those uh, in our spheres of influence who don't know him, if they don't know him when he comes as judge, they will suffer for eternity. That needs to mean something to us. That means we, we should, like Jesus, weep over sinners. We should be moved to want to invite people into and out of, into the kingdom of heaven and out of the darkness of hell. That should be a a passionate desire of ours because we, how are they supposed to know? How are they supposed to fear what they don't understand, what they don't have the eyes to see? See, most of the time we just want them to behave better so they don't inconvenience us. But what if that was Jesus' attitude? Where would we be? Lost. Forever. But that is not Christ's attitude, and that is not the Spirit's attitude who exalts Jesus in and through us. And this morning, we're going to see a little bit further. We're, we're returning to that language that you've heard before of mortification and vivification. Those are good words, and they're helpful to us because we don't use them all the time. And it helps us to frame out and kind of think about something in a biblical way. So before we turn to the text, let me tell you the key truth that I'd love for you to walk away with. It's that the Holy Spirit empowers us to mortify sin and vivify our adoption as children of God. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit empowers us to mortify sin and vivify our adoption as children of God. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 8, 12 through 17. Now let me pause for just a second. 
you're going to hear a lot of masculine language. Brothers, sons, it, it, it actually in, in the Greek is more inclusive than it has been necessarily translated here. There are places where it is clearly masculine language, but most of it here is inclusive of children of God. And especially where it uses the term son, that is indicative of access to or heir to all of the spiritual blessings, not just reserved for the men because it's baptized ones, both men and women are co-heirs. So that's important for you to hear this morning, but I don't want to go changing the text as I go, but just take note of that as you listen. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so let me ask you, what are you living for? This is an interesting question that I've been chewing on as I approach my 50th birthday. Now, y'all have heard a lot about that, and obviously it means something to me to turn 50. I don't really feel it so much in most ways, but in a lot of ways I do. I recognize that the majority of my life I have been spending in transition, Moving towards something, right? So, so when I was in, uh, uh, way back in the day when you walked to school in, in one direction, uphill both ways, and it snowed and all that stuff. I, I, I'm not quite that old. But when I was in school, I was always moving towards something. And I was in school up until my late 30s, being in seminary. So I was always arcing toward. I, I got a physical therapy degree, so I was moving toward a career in physical therapy. And then I got a seminary degree, so I'm moving toward further a career in ministry. Right, and I've been here for eight years, uh, and so and so it's kind of an interesting place to be as I look out on the horizon and kind of wonder what's what's next, right? Well, there's not a job because it just I'm not interested in necessarily going out and finding another ministry job because it just feels lateral to me, right? I would rather keep investing in you here and in this place here uh, and and finish what we started. Instead of just kind of moving around. So that's, that's off the board. Um, Susan and I are not going to have any more children that I'm aware of. Uh, <laughs> that she's aware of. We do have another grandchild coming, but those, they're just fun. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I'm, it's interesting. And so where we live, I'm not really interested in trying to move. I love where we live. And so it feels like a, a settling in of sorts. So what am I living for? It is an interesting thing to kind of think about uh, as, as you turn 50. And for many of you, you've had these same kind of things as you look at retirement, and you, some of you are older than 50. But it's an interesting question to ask, what am I living for? Right? And hopefully, it is the same in some measure as when I was 30 if I am in Christ. I should be living for the kingdom. And the great gift of that is the kingdom has no end. It is eternal. 
So the real question for me is, what am I investing in that's eternal? What am I giving away? How am I spending the talents that the Lord has given me? I want life more abundant, especially as I approach my 50th birthday and look ahead that hopefully, Lord willing, if he grants me 25 years or more, that the best is actually ahead of me in many respects because I'm comfortable in who I am in my own skin for the most part. Right? There's some slight changes that need to be made. I mean, that fit by 50 is going horribly, by the way. Uh, for those of you <laughs> who are wondering about that. Uh, I hit 229, got excited, and now I'm back to like 239 or so. <laughs> I haven't weighed in a little bit. And so it, it's, it's, that can't be what I'm living for. Because I can't live forever, right? And, and Susan and I were joking. I was like, why do I need to work out? I can get hit by a bus tomorrow. And Susan was like, where are you that there's a bus of any kind? <laughs> You don't walk anywhere, like it is the, the, the likelihood you get hit by, it would have to fly out of the sky and hit you and find you somewhere. And so this is an important question for all of us. It doesn't have to be an age-related question. For those of you who are graduating high school and moving on to college, you need to answer this question. What are you living for? Those of you who are graduating uh, college and moving on into the world, you need to answer this question. What is it you are living for? Those of you who are in any different circumstance, this is an important question to ask. And if we are in union with Christ, we need to be living for the things of God. Now, that doesn't mean that, that the ordinary things don't matter. They do. In fact, that is what God uses as ordinary means, including us. And so as we turn to this text, Paul's going to help us to understand some ways in which we need to be thinking about this question and then living it out. And so, as we turn to the text, let's look at life more abundant in the Holy Spirit, dead to sin and alive to God. So then, brothers, now, anytime you see a so then, or therefore, it's always good to pause and say, okay, what's this connected to? And what he's saying is, because you are indwelt by the Spirit. So, if you are indwelt by the Spirit, and how do we know we're indwelt by the Spirit? If we're in union with Christ, we are convicted by sin. We are desirous of righteousness, and we are sobered by judgment. Now, all of us are in process on each of those things, right? That nobody is not a perfect arrival, and not everybody is moved in the same exact way by the same exact things. But if you are hard of heart, you couldn't care less what's going to happen to your neighbors and family and friends, then you need to be sobered by the fact that you may not be saved, right? There is no category in Scripture that allows that you get to determine that you're saved. No, it'll be proved by how you live. It'll be evidenced, not earned, but reflected. And that's very important that we recognize that and be sobered by that. And so if you're indwelt by the Spirit, you are not a debtor to the flesh. Now here's what this means. There's also an implication that you are a debtor to something, but it ain't the flesh. And so this is good news for us, right? So why are we not debtors to the flesh? How many of us have tried to atone for the mistakes we've made? We try to make up for the things we do wrong. We try to make up for something we've done in the past, or we carry this insane amount of guilt because we can't make up for it. Both are wrong. That's you saying you are a debtor to the flesh. No, you are not. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. If Jesus' work was not complete in dealing with your sin, past, present, and future, you have no hope at all because none of you are perfect. 
It means you would constantly be working out of a deficit and scarcity economy, which is not the Lord our God, who is a God of abundance, who is a God of lavishness. I love the way Ephesians puts it. He lavished his grace and mercy upon us in the person of Christ. Amen? Wow, that was a good number of amens right then. That was actually pretty good. This first few rows, you guys are getting it. Maybe the spirit will move on back someday. But it's very important that we not, that we are able to recognize what that means. So this is why your justification has got to mean something on a Wednesday afternoon when you are haunted by the noonday demon that whispers into your ear that you are insufficient and you are guilty. Or Friday night or Saturday morning or whenever it may be, this is why these things can't just be abstract theological concepts. Parents, you've got to help your children understand this, and you have to parent them out of this reality. If you are going to treat them as debtors indebted to you, well, how far into eternity can they go? Children, if you treat your parents as debtors to you, how far into eternity can your parents go? Friends, Fellow church members, if we're going to treat each other as if we owe each other something other than to, to exemplify, vivify who we are in Christ and to help each other to mortify sin and grow as disciples, if we're going to treat each other as debtors, well, that has a very, very short lifespan and we cannot grow. We cannot grow in Christ. So, so it is very important that the first thing that we recognize and we mortify, this is what he's getting at, you must first mortify, put to death, this idea that you owe anything in your flesh. You cannot atone. You cannot make it as if it never happened. You can't take it back. Right? You can't. So this is very freeing to us. This is something we need to meditate on and think about and even ask the Spirit. Uh, have the courage this Lord's Day Sabbath to pray, Lord, how am I functioning as a debtor to the flesh and how might I be set free? I don't want to function as a debtor to the flesh because that debt can never be paid. Trust me, this is what I do for a living. And how often people try to triangulate me and use me instead as one who could pronounce in some way forgiveness of sins, as one who could help set them free in the gospel. Instead, what they want me to do is judge someone else wicked or wrong or foolish. I can't tell you how many times people come to me for counsel and that ain't what they're looking for. And so it's important that we begin to recognize that, that Christ has paid it all, that Christ was the propitiation, to use Paul's language from Romans 3. He was the payment, and he is sufficient, and that is a firm foundation on which we can stand. And he goes on to say, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, this is not the threat of judgment, but this is just a reality. If you're going to live based on something that is not eternal, it will end, right? That's just logic. If you're going to live according to something that is limited and will someday perish, well, then you get what you get by investing in that thing. So if you're going to live according as a debtor to the flesh, you're going to make everything about you, and you're going to make everything about owing, well, that will perish. We see this in marriages. 
How healthy can a marriage be when somebody thinks the other person owes them something? Or we treat each other for some reason as a debtor. We've talked about this, how lucky Susan is to be married to me. That's just that we don't need to argue that point at this time. Uh, but I don't treat her as a debtor. She's just lucky, right? Uh, and so um, that's not true. But how would it work if that's how, if every day uh, I had expectations of her that were unrealistic and unfair to her as co-heir? Let me pause right here and just say, and this is, this is a tangent of sorts, but it's worth saying for those of you who wonder, well, then what does it mean to be the spiritual head of the household? Look to Jesus. It means you lay down your life for the rest of your family to make sure that they know who God is and that he loves them and that they are forgiven. To be the spiritual head of the household is to recognize you will be responsible not for who made you a sandwich, but for whether or not you ensure that each member of your household had every opportunity to know the gospel. Now, whether or not they respond to it, now that's another matter. It's not on you. It's like he told Ezekiel. You're not responsible for how they respond. You're responsible for whether or not they got to hear it and were invited into it. So you don't lord it over them. You offer. It's hospitality and such. And so if we were to treat each other as debtors, as opposed to co-heirs, if we were to treat each other as... Notice he's using the spirit as unifying principle. Do the Jews get more of the Spirit? Are they better served by the Spirit because of their knowledge of the law? What's the answer? No. Are the Gentiles, because they're the new kids on the block, and they're not all encumbered by tradition and law and all that other nonsense because they're free to be creative and kind of feel the Spirit as it blows, are they better off? No. No, this is a unifying principle. Every single person... Regardless of who you are, regardless of your background, and this is a great gift, you need the Spirit. There is no one that is a greater debtor to the flesh because they maybe have sinned more boldly than you. Remember, pride is more obnoxious to God than any sexual sin we could commit. And so it's important that we recognize this unifying principle and that we're not debtors to the flesh. If we're not debtors to the flesh, we are not debtors to each other. And better that we would serve each other as those who are debtors to the Spirit, who has imbued us in the power of the resurrection. And we do this not because we're afraid to die, but because we're afraid to not live. This is one place where actually FOMO makes sense. You should have a fear of missing out on the abundant life in Christ. You should have a fear on missing out on the eternal gifts that come from investing in eternal things. You should have a fear on missing out on life in the Spirit. That's what you should fear. That's what he's telling us. You do this because you want life and life more abundant. But for too many of us, we haven't even really thought about what that means or what that could look like in our lives. I understand that what I just said is a heavy thing for many in the room. Right? Mental health, abuse, both of which I have suffered, uh, makes this at times hard because we sit in darkness. It makes it hard because it's hard to, you can't just will yourself out of it. Now that, that's important because Paul's actually not saying that. You can't will yourself out of it. 
Which is why you need the Spirit. You need the Spirit as much in sanctification as you did in justification. Notice the language of dependence as he goes on. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds in the body, you will live. Notice that by the Spirit, not by your own willpower, not by your own understanding, not by your own uh, uh, rage or, or, or worthiness or any of that. It is purely by the Spirit who has been given to you by the finished work of Christ. Right? Remember, he said, Jesus said, it is best for you that I go away in the ascension. It is best that the Spirit comes because the Spirit can indwell you all. I am an embodied thing. And the Spirit can fill you all. What a gift that this is to us. And so we need to recognize the great gift that it is and the dependence that we are to have. So it is not on us to, in our own strength, put to death any of the sin that indwells in us. But you are to participate in the power of the Spirit. You're being invited into this great work and shaping and cultivating of life more abundant. And yes, the things that are sinful separate us and they destroy our ability to, to, to experience life more abundant, to experience Jesus. How many of you feel the weight of being concerned that somebody may find out what you've done? Who you are, that you lost your temper with your children. How many of you feel like the worst parent in the world as if you had invented being a terrible parent? As if we haven't been doing that in spades for a long time. How many of you feel like if, if, if people knew, and it, and it keeps you from being able to be in community, it keeps you from actually being able to be a friend to someone else because you're spending all your effort and energy hiding who you really are instead of walking in the Spirit who sets you free, forgiven, and able to forgive. What a gift it would be if we could walk in that kind of freedom, how it would affect the church. Think of how distant we are from just each other at times because we don't want people to know what's going on until it's too late. Think about how it affects, how would you invite someone into the church if you got stuff you're hiding or you're worried they would find out, right? You don't want people from your spheres of influence drawing into this realm. And so it keeps us from actually doing what we're called to do. And so, and, and what, a, what a wonderful gift it is that the Spirit helps us to mortify that stuff, to put to death that which is killing us. What a great gift this is. And so we need to be a people who are about that business, that we would pray and ask the Spirit, Lord, show me my darkness. Psalm 139, pray the Bible. Show me where I am distant from God. Show me where I am unpassionate, have no desire for his mission. Show me where I in any way, shape, or form, are dishonoring this great gift that you have housed in me. And it's not just maintenance work. You know, all mortification, that just sounds like weeding and pruning. Instead of being able to reap the benefits that come from the garden itself, he goes on to say, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So this is very important what he's saying here. Don't read this in a vacuum. Everybody got this side of the room suddenly, are there some Swedish meatballs on this side of the room? Because I love Swedish meatballs. 
all you're going to be stuck doing. The Christian life is not just this endless cycle of mortification. Sin, mortify. Sin, mortify. Because if that's all there was, that is not life more abundant, is it? So he's saying, you don't, you're not, it's not a spirit of slavery. This mortification is going to lead to something. And it's going to lead to the vivification of who and whose you are. See, if you are caught in an endless cycle of sin and mortification, you, you, and you're not growing in vivification, well, guess what? That is a good indicator that something is wrong. And you need to, to work on seeing that get right. You need to invite other people into, hey, what am I missing here? What, what part of the gospel am I failing to believe? What part of this am I continuing to work out of an indebtedness? Help me. Would that we would have that kind of courage to invite people in. We act as if we're supposed to walk around as spiritual experts on all things. That is utterly impossible. You can't do it. You can't see all sides, no matter how hard you try. And so it is important that we see this is not some just endless process that we keep falling back into fear, but you have received this spirit of adoption as sons by whom we get to cry, not in anguish, but in joy. Abba, Father. As one whose father killed himself before he was born, as one whose stepfather spent 29 years in prison, this is utterly foreign to me. But there is a longing in me that, that I can't wait to do this in person, and I've been able to do it some over the years. What a great gift it has been for the Spirit to get me there. These are strange words to me, given my experience, as it probably is for many of you. But our Abba Father is not like our earthly fathers. My Abba Father didn't, didn't kill himself and abandon me. He didn't choose to, eh, you can go selfish, selfless. I understand there's dynamics at work. But to me, who was an infant, I sure could have used somebody around. But maybe I don't know what I'm asking for. And to my stepfather, who spent 29 years in prison, six of which only did I know him outside of the prison environment. Probably could have used him to be in jail that other six, to be quite honest with you, given what he taught me. But, but that's not the end of the story, and praise be to God that I, because of Christ's finished work and the spirit that indwells me, I get to cry not in anguish, but in joy. Abba, Father, I am a son of God. And that is good for many of you, too, to be able to do that. That is part of the beneficences. And when we cry that in joy, we vivify the relationship. Think about what this world desperately needs. Tell me, where is the good news? Somebody send me a headline that's good news that's not either ironic or ironic or goofy, right? All, all we seem to have, it seems, these days and many others, maybe that's just because I'm approaching 50, <laughs> I'll read the paper more, look at the weather. Uh, <laughs> we could use some good news. Well, we've got it. It is Christ and the Spirit in us. And we of all people ought to be the most, most creative people in the room and the most hopeful. We hope not with sorrow. We hope not unto grief, we hope unto life. And would that we would not allow what is going on in the world to dictate who and whose we are or who we seem to be and whose we seem to be beholden to. 
And that we would vivify this reality. Notice what he says. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How important that is that the Spirit bears witness of that and uses so many different ways in which to remind us of that. Uh, We are moving offices. And if I could, I would have just bought a can of gasoline and a book of matches and started over. But that's not... It's not okay, as it turns out. (laughs) Um, The books alone would have burned for a thousand years. And so I was going through stuff, and for some reason, I had this box under my desk. It's been there for eight years, and it's full of stuff. I didn't even know what was in there, but it's full. It's been sitting there, and so I had the impression, oh, this must have been some organized something. I started going through it, and it makes no sense whatsoever what's in this box. But I found some of my old seminary papers and, 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 and was, was kind of reading through uh, some of the things that I was processing at the time. And, and it, was a, it was a beautiful moment, uh, and, and it was Steve Brown. And it was his comments on some of the essays that I wrote uh, back, at, back then. And it reminded me, you are loved of God. And you are not, you, you are not a debtor to the flesh. And it's not just because I was moving that I needed to be reminded of that, by the way. Uh, I don't, I'm not quite that fragile. Uh, but but it, was, it was awesome to have this opportunity. And mo- apparently, moving was going to be the only way I was going to reach into that God-forsaken box and pull anything out. And so the Lord is gracious to let us know along the way in so many ways that we are his children. And we are beloved of, of him And we are filled with the Spirit, and we are not going to be perfect. You have to put that out of your mind. But what you will be is forgiven. And what you will be, because the Spirit indwells in you, is growing in sanctification. Lean into it. Participate in it. And not just are we children, he goes on, means that it's as if we were born to him. We're not just adopted in the sense of, yeah, you're not like the regular children, but you're part of the family. You have access to most stuff. No, this is as if we were born to him from the start. In fact, we are co-heirs with Christ. That means something. That means that we have access to all the spiritual blessings. That means that we are heirs to the person who spoke into being from nothing. And, by the way, and don't miss this, by his own hands. It's the only thing in creation he used his own hands for, not to over-anthropomorphize. God doesn't have actual hands. But he fashioned Adam and Eve himself. It was the one thing he did that he didn't just speak into being. He took that kind of time, and that means something. And we are created in his image, not just his image, we are empowered with all that he has. Ephesians 1 actually tells us this. What a great gift it is to know that we are heirs. So, given that vast storehouse of what he has that is lavish and eternal and unending, why do we go around acting as if we are indebted and debtors? Why do we act like we should withhold from our friends and neighbors so great a truth as these things? Not just in word, it's got to be in deed too. They got to be able to see it vivified in your life because otherwise, what are you inviting them into? Hey, come be angry with me and a bunch of other people who hate the government and hate what's happening in the world and are hopeless. It'll be awesome. We're going to sing some songs you're going to hate. What? 
kind of invitation is that? What if it was, hey, you need to come be around this, these people when they love each other and it don't even make no sense. They display the gospel. Wait, they, man, they're so quick to forgive, it'll make your head spin. They're so quick to, 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 if you need something, be there and help you, it'll astonish you. You, you need to come hang with these folks. They're going to befriend you and love you and be hospitable to you and feed you uh, should you ever have a child or a, a situation. Uh, and, and they're going to make sure you're covered. And they're going to pray for you. And they're going to check on you. It's, it, you'll love it. You may not like all the songs, but, but you'll love all the other stuff. Right? I like our songs. It's not, I'm, I, but I know y'all. I see y'all. I see some of y'all. And it's okay. And, and if we're heirs of this stuff, why are we not giving this stuff away? And he says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now here, this, you got to hear this next piece. You got to be careful with this. So, so you got to give me your attention for a little bit. He says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, a short way of saying this is the cross comes before the crown. Another way of understanding, I think that was my granddaughter's voice. Uh, another way of saying this is that humiliation precedes exaltation. Now, this suffering, just so we're clear, is not just religious persecution. It's not. This is actually suffering the same limits as Jesus. You do know that Jesus was fully man. He does not know the time of his return. Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience through suffering. If he had to learn obedience through suffering, how are you going to get there? How am I going to get there? And we are filled with resurrection power, okay? Just like he was. And he, was he, he was sinless, okay? You with me? Did Jesus get tired? He sure did. So if the sinless guy, filled with the Spirit, who's the Son of God, heir to all that stuff, got tired, what are you going to do? You will get tired. You, in suffering with Jesus, you will suffer with Jesus anytime you try to love somebody in his name. You will suffer. We're going to fail you. I'm going to forget your birthday. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to say something you don't like. Uh, I'm going to fail to say something when you wished I would. You're not going to like my advice sometimes. It, it just is how it goes. We're, we're still a mix of saint sinner, and we will never please each other the way that God can please us. We will never completely satisfy each other. So to try to love each other in any way, shape, or form is going to cause suffering. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Why do you have kids? Right? Like if you, if you thought, I, I'm going to have kids because I want to be, I want to be exalted. Uh, I, I, I want, I want to, to be taken care of when I'm older. Um, I'm scared to death of Kimberly taking care of me when I'm older. I really, right, Susan? Tell the truth. We're hoping Scarlett, uh, we make it to Scarlett's age. She's old enough. I mean, did, did, you, did you have kids thinking they were going to prove your awesomeness? To prove your power and your vigor? No. Same reason. Why, it's the funny thing that we, like, why did God create people if he knew they were going to sin? And that's when I always turn and say, why did you have children? You knew they were going to sin. You knew they were going to turn. I, like it was Scarlet. I, I know someday it's not going to be as cute as it is right now. I, I lament the day. But 
I'm hopeful, and I'm enjoying these while we have them. And so it's important that we recognize that love is going to have a component of suffering. How many of you uh, feel like you are the best friend anybody could have? How many of you feel like you have the best friends that anybody could have? They never fail you. Always on time. Always know when you need them. Always show up. Always show out. Invites you to everything. See, to love is to suffer. Which is why we so often keep people arm's length, which is not what Jesus did. You understand? Jesus didn't do that. He got very near to them. In fact, he got so near to them, they called him a wine-bibber and a glutton. He stunk of the sheep, and so should we. So this isn't just religious persecution. This is living out the gospel in a fallen world. You will suffer, and that must precede glorification. We want to be, not become, right? We want to jump to the good thing, right? That, that whole fit by 50. I was hoping if I said it enough times that the weight would just kind of fall off, and I would suddenly, have, my, my anaerobic capacity would be amazing. My V.02 max would be something to behold. It ain't. In fact, I was just, just gardening the other day, and my back hurt so bad. You know, y'all been in that situation where, like, you, you think, if I just keep changing positions, I don't, people, I don't know what people thought I was doing uh, in the garden beds. It was, it was ridiculous. But I was going to finish what I started, and I paid for it. But think about that for a second. Think of how humiliating it is. If I'm filled with the resurrection, why does my back hurt so bad just gardening? What kind of, what kind of deal is that? Well... That's part of longing for the beauty of the resurrected body in which pain will be no more and every tear will be wiped away. Those promises became sweeter as I gardened and I agonized. So we too must take on the same limits as Jesus did. You know, Jesus died. His time on earth was short. It came to an end and so will yours. And that, that causes suffering. So it is important that we recognize this is not a qualifier in the sense that you are only saved if you suffer. No, if you are saved, you will suffer. And better that you suffer in Jesus than against him. Better that you suffer in the power of the Holy Spirit who can mortify and vivify. Better that you suffer as a, an heir of God than an enemy. And so what we see here is the great gift that the Spirit is to us, who not only convicts us of sin and helps us to desire righteousness and be sobered by judgment, but also partners with us, empowers us to cultivate who and whose we are, to mortify and to vivify. Listen to what John Calvin says about this passage. He says, Paul confirms the certainty of that confidence in adoption as children of God, in which he has already bidden the faithful to rest secure. And he does this by mentioning the special effect produced by the Spirit, for he has not been given for the purpose of harassing us with trembling or tormenting us with anxiety. That is really important. The Holy Spirit is not trying to harm you. The Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit if you feel beat down and burdened in such a way that it doesn't lead to mortification and vivification. That is a good indicator. The Holy Spirit is, is about building up and encouraging even when he has to prune and pull away those things that are killing us. 
It goes on, but on the contrary, for this end, that having calmed every perturbation and restoring our minds to a tranquil state, he may stir us up to call on God with confidence and freedom. That is vivification. So let me ask you a couple of questions that are worthy of you really thinking through. If you're in a small group and and you're able to have a discussion about these questions, that'd be great. It's great to do in community. You can do it within your family as part of maybe family worship later today. You you can do it with friends, wherever you want to do it. But I would really encourage you to take the time to think these questions through. In what ways is the Holy Spirit empowering you to mortify particular sins in your life? As I shared with you last week, there's a particular sin that the Lord is, uh, that the Spirit's helping me to mortify, and he's used a couple of different friends of mine to say things that actually weren't, they weren't confronting me. They just made an observation, and it pierced me. The Spirit is at work, and amen. And then, and then so it's, it's maybe for you something very particular, and I, there may be particulars. That doesn't mean you are less loved by God. In what ways is the Holy Spirit empowering you to vivify your adoption as a child of God? And these three things that we say often are very important. It's very important that we see that when God is at work, these three things happen. It is for God's glory, right? So if, 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 if your adoption is being vivified in you, God will be glorified. It doesn't diminish him. It doesn't exalt you over him. He first is glorified, and then it is for your joy. It should bring you joy that your adoption as God's son or daughter, that that would, that would be vivified, that somebody else could see that and, and taste that and be affected by that. And then last and certainly not least, that this vivification of your adoption as a child of God would be for the eternal good of those in your spheres of influence. Are your spheres of influence better because you, a Christian, filled with the Spirit in union with Christ, a son or daughter of the God Most High, are part of that sphere? Is it better? And you can't say and hope that it's just kind of osmotic, right? That it just gets, well, you know, I'm just, I'm like, I'm nice. I don't really say much, you know, uh, by the way. But that doesn't necessarily declare. And so there's some ways, and we're all different, right? We're all different in how we present. Some are more vocal than others. Some are more service-driven than others. Some, it just, it's opportunistic. So don't, don't get in your mind only what an extrovert would do. 80% of you are introverts. And so it's important, though, that this matters to us. So if you are an introvert, who can help you vivify your adoption? You gonna do it? That Tommy said it best. Mm-hmm. You gotta have the spirit. The spirit can vivify. I've seen it with Su- Susan. Is a profound introvert, right? She just is. That's why you don't ever get no phone calls from her, no text messages, nothing. Uh, she'll respond, but you probably ain't getting nothing on, on the front tip. But, but what's interesting is, in her spheres of influence, it is well known she vivifies her adoption as daughter of the God Most High. Even though she don't say a whole lot, she ain't flashy, like myself, you know, 240 running around being crazy. But she vivifies. 
because the Spirit is at work, because she, she asks what she cries out for. She knows who she is and whose she is. So it can be done. You may have to ask, and the Spirit will work. So what do we get from Romans 8, 12 through 17? Very simply, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to mortify sin and vivify our adoption as children of God. That is one of the great gifts of the personal work of the Holy Spirit. I encourage you to prayerfully access it and partner with it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the indwelling of the Spirit. Thank you that we are not left with death alone. It feels like there is nothing but death in this world, and yet you have called us to life more abundant. That doesn't mean that everything will go well. That does include suffering, but it's suffering that will have eternal meaning. Would you help us, Lord, to mortify in the power of the Holy Spirit the sin that so easily entangles us and keeps us from living The fear of judgment's been taken away in Jesus. Let's not worry about that. Let's worry about that we may not be living in the way that you have called and equipped us to. And God, help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to vivify who and whose we are for the eternal good of those around us, for your glory and and for our joy. What a joy it would be to see some things transformed by your Holy Spirit. Would you entrust so glorious a work to us? God, you've been good. We have seen uh, people uh, come to the table through our children's ministry. Would you entrust even greater? Would you entrust family members? Would you entrust neighbors, coworkers? Would you entrust to us the opportunity to be hospitable to those who don't presently know you but desperately need to become children, heirs, to taste and see that you are good? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.